0: To the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show with your hosts, Gene Mitchell and Martin Donahue. Tune in every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Ultimate Sports Talk. A very pleasant good evening, everyone, and welcome to another Monday evening. That means it's time for the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, where we kick back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds, and it was quite a week for both ball clubs. And let's bring in, without any further ado, our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, good evening. How are you tonight?
1: I'm great, Dave, and uh, we we do have a lot to talk about, and I Know later on we're going to be hearing from Johnny Bench and congratulations on uh, uh getting a big uh, b- big interview and and it was I think people are really going to enjoy it later on.
0: Well, it has a lot to do with what's going on with this show and the website Mark. Of course, you and I we work real hard at this show and it's just some of the the fruits of, of our labor. Of course, we do it as a labor of love and just enjoy talking about the Indians and the Reds and I'll tell you what I let's get right into it. I mean Johnny Bench is gonna be coming up here in just a few minutes, so hang on for that. We're gonna be talking to him about uh Sparky Anderson, Pete Rose, the seventy five World Series, and of course the Pepsi Max Field of Dreams game that he's playing in on May eighteenth, which is this weekend. But hey, it was a winning week for both both clubs, Mark. The Reds went four and two this week, the the Indians went seven and three and I said before this nine-game streak for the Indians started against Oakland, Detroit, and New York that if they went 5-4, and four, I would be happy. And I'm ecstatic tonight. They went 7-2. and two. I, I
1: saw them three times over the weekend, and it looks like a, a confident team. And it, it may be Francona has brought with him from Boston the assumption that you're going to win. Not the hope. But you just you go out there assuming you're going to win. And what I saw over the weekend was a team that wasn't intimidated by Detroit in the least. Uh, they They took advantage of some breaks, but they you know they to me, it's a huge difference in that team, at least from the outsider. Now you're you're closer to it than I am, but it just looked like a different team from an emotional perspective. And they just expect to win. And when you have that kind of attitude, uh, you're going to win more times than you lose.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I agree with you, Mark. I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's a combination of Terry Francona and Nick Swisher. I think Swisher has been every worth every penny that he's been paid so far this year. Just the way that he has led this ball club, not so much on the field, but off the field. Just the way he keeps this team loose and happy and having fun out there, I, I think he's got a lot to do with it. And you're right, I think Francona does too. He just expects the ball club to go out and play hard every inning, every pitch, every ball game. And that's all he expects. And he says, we'll, we'll let things go as they may. If you just do that, he said, more more good things are going to come to you than they are bad. And I tend to agree. I think he's done a great job with this ball club. The pitching has turned around over the last month. They're seventh in the major leagues in pitching. Their hitting has been one of the best in major league baseball so far. They're leading the major leagues in home runs. And I just can't be more excited than about what they're doing. And, and I just hope it just continues. I mean, they're right now tied for first place.
1: Yeah, and that's... That's not a fluke team. It's not just a team that's hot for a few weeks. I mean, they have enough pitching, and they have defense too. Uh, that that's going to help them throughout the year. And when you when you add the the power they have, uh, you know, it's not a team that's winning with smoke and mirrors. I mean, they're winning because they're beating some good teams, and. Uh, you know, it's too bad they had to end up today with uh, with a shutout. But, that, you know, that's going to happen throughout the year. And uh, even if they lose two or three games in a row, that team has enough talent, and now they know they do. I, I don't think that that's the kind of team that's going to fall apart like they did a couple years ago when they were in first place, I think, into late June. And all of a sudden, the wheels came off. I mean, that team back then did not have the talent that this team has, and it did not have the leadership that this team had. So I, I think... Cleveland fans are are in for a pretty exciting summer this year.
0: Absolutely. You have really nailed it right there. They've got the leadership. And I think now the team believes in this front office. They believe in this ownership and they believe in the manager. And, you know, I've spent much of the last two years, Mark, complaining about the front office. And I think this year, you know, one of the things that I've said over the last couple of years is this ownership has to prove to the city, that they are in it to win it. And I think they did their job this winter in what they did with Francona, Bourne, and Swisher. And now the city is starting to see the fruits of their labor. Mark, I gotta tell you, for a noon doubleheader in Cleveland today, they had over 8,000 people walk up and buy tickets, and they had their largest attendance, except for opening day, Uh, Of 25000 today for a Monday afternoon doubleheader.
1: Well, we've said all year, and we said last year and the year before, if the Cleveland fans have proved they will support the Indians, I mean, how many sellouts in a a row did they have? Uh, They've proven if you put a good product on the field, they will show up. And the thing I was impressed most about with this streak they're on right now, and it's not really a winning streak. It's just consistent baseball from from day one. Is Bourne was on the DL, and they still went out there and they won, despite that. Guys picked up picked him up, and uh, you know he, he he certainly is going to make a contribution. They are better with him with him than out without him. But uh, I thought it was pretty interesting, just pretty much what the Reds did last year when they had some injuries and they they overcame them and played their best ball of the year when uh, they had people injured.
0: Yeah, and you know, the thing about it is, Mark, I just want to give out some stats here about the Indians, <laughs> and we'll flip over to the Reds. But 21-16 and 16 is what the Indians are today after the split with the New York Yankees. They're 7-3 and three in their last 10. They won 7 of their last 9 against Oakland, Detroit, and New York. And those were the three division winners from a year ago. They were also Detroit and New York were in first place when the Indians met them over this nine-game series. And Oakland was just two games out of first place when they played the Indians starting last Monday night. And the Indians swept them in four games. The Tribe were in first place. So, I mean, hey, now we've got Philadelphia coming up over the next couple of days. And then Seattle is coming to town. But I want to flip over to the Reds because... From As you said, from an outsider looking in, these three games against Milwaukee over the weekend, which the Reds won all three, you would think that the offense kind of kicked it into high gear uh, in those three games scoring four, 13, and five runs respectively. Is that the case, Mark, or do they still have some problems?
1: No, they, they still got some problems. Uh, even in the 13-run game, uh, they had five runs in one inning and seven in, <laughs> in the next inning. So they're not scoring consistently and that's what concerns me and it has concerned me all year, but uh, they, they overcame nine consecutive uh, unquality starts uh, and they won six of those games. six they were six and three in those, qual- in those nine games. See, the Reds are, are a balanced team they're, they're not great in anything, uh, but they're strong in just about everything. And they're 22 and 16, almost the same record as the Indians, and they're two games out of first place behind St. Louis, who's they just got off a what an eight-game winning streak. So the Reds are in pretty good shape. I mean, I think in terms of it's way way too early to start thinking about wild card positioning at this point, but I think the Reds um, have a chance to be there all year, and I'm sure they will be all year. I don't see what they're pitching. That they're going to run into long losing streaks, especially when they get Cueto back this coming Sunday. He's supposed to be off the DL this Sunday and, and pitching. So they have, uh, you know, they're they're in pretty good shape, and I think the Reds are are, are going to be there. Uh, the, the Cardinals, when you look at their pitching, though, did you see the stats this week on their pitching staff? I mean, just unbelievable pitching they're getting. And if they maintain that, nobody's going to catch them. But uh, I think overall the Reds are, are, are certainly as good as the Cardinals, if not better.
0: Mark, I know Shelby Miller is a good pitcher for the Cardinals, <laughs> but but realistically he's not going to keep up what he's doing. And I've been watching this Mets-St. Louis game tonight, and i I got to tell you, I've heard this through the rumor mill, and I've seen it with my own, my, my own eyes tonight. Lance Lynn's got an attitude problem. When things don't go well for him, he's not very happy on the mound.
1: Well yeah, I saw him uh I saw him pitch against the Reds not long ago. And uh to me he he's got a lot of stuff. I, I just don't think that he is the kind of guy who's gonna last all year. But I think the most interesting thing I heard about the Cardinals of late is that Chris Carpenter uh has been throwing with no pain. And he says he's ready to make a comeback. And that that's that's the that's the quickest retirement turnaround I've ever heard. But uh, if they can get Chris Carpenter back, even though they lost Westbrook, uh, that, that pitching staff is, is really off the chart. That team just doesn't have a good bullpen. And I think uh, offensively uh, they're solid, but defensively they're not. And I still think the Reds overall, top to bottom, are a better team. You know, have a better roster. But it's going to be an interesting race between the Cardinals and the Reds throughout the year.
0: Yeah, very much so. Hey, one thing we do want to say is Dusty Baker won his 1600th uh career game last Tuesday night in that dramatic win against Atlanta.
1: Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> Dusty Baker. I've never seen anybody take as much heat as he does for being one of the, probably one of the top managers in the history of baseball. When you win 1600 games, you've done something right. And he's had some good teams, he's had some bad teams, but uh I think what Dusty does—he—he he, he may not be an Earl Weaver type uh, on game day uh, st- strategy. Sometimes he he does things that I you know I scratch my head. But I think what he does really well—he uh, brings together the team. Uh, you you can you will not hear a player have a bad word about Dusty Baker, and that's that's half the battle right there. You get those guys on your side, and they're going to go out there and play hard for you. That's about all uh, all he can do. But, you know, my biggest complaint about Dusty is he's always played for, you know, the three-run home run. And he's never been the kind of guy who wants to try and manufacture some runs. And, you know, sometimes you need to do that in a close game or you're not hitting. And this team doesn't steal bases. It, it, it's just not built that way. And that's, But that's just style. That's You know, it's, it's the way he does it. And uh, uh, you can't argue with the success he's had.
0: Mark, I I want to get into a couple of things that happened this week overall in Major League Baseball. And don't forget, our our interview with Johnny Bench is coming up here in just about 10 minutes, so stick around for that. It's a great interview. Um, But I I want to talk about a couple of things, especially last last Wednesday night. I'm sorry, it was last Wednesday night. It has to do with the umpiring. I, I kind of went off on the umpires on my Thursday night show, and I wanted to get your... Uh, thoughts on what happened—the um, Angel the Hernandez incident, incident, incident in, in Cleveland, Cleveland where is. it was a replay, and he botched it. I mean, let's just call it—let's just call it what it was. He botched it. And then the very next night, Mark, in the Houston Los Angeles Angels game, the <clears> umpires <throat> blew a very commonly known rule, where you. Have to bring in a relief pitcher. When you bring in a relief pitcher, they have to face at least one hitter, and they blew that. What is going on with Major League Baseball umpiring right now?
1: Well, first of all, <clears throat> I'm a I'm not a fan, but I'm sympathetic to the umpires. They have a tough, tough job, and you can understand miscalls, <clears throat> balls and strikes. The guy seeing 400 pitches, you know, it's likely they're going to uh, you know miss a couple. Uh, I can even understand how you you can miss a bang-bang play at first base where the ball and the runner gets there at the same time. There is no excuse for not knowing the rules. That is just asinine. And there's no excuse for not being able to accurately see a video replay of a home run that everybody in the world saw as a home run, and they didn't. There's no excuse for that. And what is so aggravating <clears throat> is the, that Major League Baseball does not punish these guys. It, it, they, they don't find them. They don't suspend them. They know, I guess they got, what, two-day suspension after a, a public outcry. But some of these guys, <clears throat> and Angel Hernandez, I, mean, I, I know some guys, <clears throat> I'm not going to mention names, that have played recently, or actually a couple playing right now. They say he's the worst umpire in baseball. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but these two individuals I know that that still play, they told me that everybody in the league says, and the players talk, you know, the, the, when they go to first base or they go to second base, they'll talk about the umpires or whatever. They say he's the worst umpire in baseball. Now, if that's the case, I'm not saying it is, but if it were the case, why is he still umpiring?
0: Well, that's a very widely, yeah, that's a good question because that's a widely known fact that baseball players believe that, Mark. There's been a couple of anonymous polls by baseball players where their names have been anonymous, just like you said, that they have voted for the best umpires and the worst umpires. And in the last three years, Angel Hernandez has been in the bottom three for the last three years. He's an absolute joke. I mean, I'm not going to beat around the bush with it. This guy is an absolute joke. But what I couldn't understand about what Major League Baseball did last week, Mark, and I wanted to get your opinion about this, they suspended the crew chief on Thursday night for blowing the rule in the Houston-Los Angeles Angels game, but they did nothing to Angel Hernandez for blowing the replay. How could you suspend one without suspending the other?
1: Well, I I think the argument would be that in the Indians game they could not 100% over, overturn the play had had they called it a home run initially it would have stayed a home run but the fact that they because they couldn't they couldn't according to them they couldn't tell i don't know what replay they were looking at i saw i think three different angles of that thing it wasn't it wasn't even close it, it wasn't one of these things where you know, it hits off the very tip top of the wall, and it goes straight up, and you can't tell where it hit and all that stuff. This, that ball was a foot over the fence, at least a foot, and it hit behind it, and you saw it back bounce back. What were they looking at? That's what I don't understand. What did they have? Did they have a replay we didn't see, or are they fundamentally blind? I mean, it's maybe well, didn't you see it that way?
0: Yeah, I saw it exactly the same way. Matter of fact, all four announcers, the TV and radio for both Oakland and Cleveland, all saw it that way. When I saw it initially, I said, Oh, that's a home run. You know, Angel Hernandez came out of that little locker room behind home plate and pointed towards second, and I just could not believe the call. But there was also a rumor floating around the media when Hernandez made that call was that he was told in the umpire's locker room, this has not been substantiated, it's just a rumor, but what the heck, we're going to say it because anything right now is is, is worth talking about. It was such a blown call. That Hernandez was told that there was a storm cloud coming in and if he would have allowed that home run, it would have been a tie ball game and they were going to extra innings and they had a noon game coming up the next day. And they were afraid that the game was going to get rained out, and they'd have to complete it on Thursday. So that was his main reasoning for not allowing the home run. I find that kind of hard to believe. But then again, on the other hand, I found it hard to believe that he made that call the way he did anyway.
1: Yeah, to have all four of the umpires, I presume, I guess, two of them looked at it. As I understand, two went underground. Three of them. Three of them did. How could all three not concur that was a home run? That. It, it makes no sense just from a visual perspective uh, and but but the argument about the the rain coming in I mean god you you could have you know the rules are today they just pick up the game the next day from the time it ends so big deal it, you know maybe it goes extra earnings the next day but uh, that that was one of the worst calls I'd seen in a long time and then that that the next night in the angels game uh, that was I I remember hearing about that. I remember that rule from Little League. You know, when you were 10 years old you knew that rule. How could you not know that rule?
0: Yeah, for those of you that don't know what happened, uh the Angels sent up a pin, uh, Houston brought in a relief pitcher. Mike Sosha of the Angels sent up a pinch hitter. He wanted to go lefty-righty against the the Astros relief pitcher. And then the umpires let Bo Porter, the Houston manager, after the pinch hitter was announced, go out and change the pitcher. And his initial pitcher that he brought in hadn't pitched to a batter, and that's the rule. He has to pitch to at least one batter unless he suffers an injury. The umpires let him go ahead and switch it. So that was what happened on on that night, and that's why that crew was suspended. I don't know. I just find it amazing that all of a sudden you're seeing all this stuff come out about the Major League umpires, Mark.
1: Yeah, and that rule, for fans who don't understand why they have that rule, is that managers could continually make changes without anything happening. You could make, you know, you could bring in a left-hand pitcher to to face a left-hand batter. They bring up a right-hand batter, and then without even pitching, they bring in another right-hand pitcher, and they keep doing that. You you could bring in five, you know, five pitchers and five pinch hitters, and nobody swung the bat. So you have a rule that the pitcher has to pitch to one hitter. It makes sense. And for, for the umpires not to know that is comical. It's just ridiculous how all four of them could not know that rule. That's that is. I
0: think they discussed it so much, Mark. You know, they had three different powwows about it. I think they discussed it so much they talked themselves out of it.
1: Well, there's no excuse for it no and no matter what no matter what they did or how they did it they blew it and there's no excuse for it it's it, it makes the umpiring profession look amateurish and that's what they don't need especially after the calls over the last 3 or 4 years some of the you know the blown perfect game and and, and there's the one at home plate with uh, w- Atlanta and Pittsburgh I think it was uh the guy was out by 5 feet and he called him safe i mean it just Ridiculous calls, and I, I think one of the most egregious calls I remember the last two or three years was in the playoffs a couple of years ago. And I forgot who was playing, but there was a there was a line drive down the left field line, and and David the ball was fair by two feet or, or at least eighteen inches, and he called it foul. And I, I mean everybody. Yeah. Do you remember the play I'm talking about?
0: Yeah. I, I remember it, but I can't remember the situation. But, yes, I remember the one you're talking about. Yeah, I forget the
1: details of it. And then the umpire, after the game, he saw the, the replay goes, I have no idea how I missed that call.
0: Well, yeah, if you don't have I any did, idea I, how
1: you missed that call, you shouldn't be out there working.
0: The worst one that I saw was the Galarraga perfect game. Well, of course. That, that was yeah. in Cleveland also. And
1: that was such a tragedy that... that you know, Galarraga is in the Reds organization now. I, I don't know if he's still with them or not. He pitched in spring training with them, and you know he's never going to come back. He, he's probably washed up, and that would have been the highlight of his his, his life probably. And you know, it's taken away by a stupid call. And it, it would have been so easy to have Major League Baseball overturn that because, they, they, but they don't do it, and they don't make it right. And that's but the Mark, thing. Here's
0: the. Here's the difference between the two. And and I wanted to bring this up before we get into the J. A. Happ incident. Jim Joyce was the umpire on the Galaraga incident. Jim Joyce was a stand-up guy. He came out the very night. He came out that night. He went to he went to Jim Leland. He went to Galaraga after the game after he saw the replay and said, I blew it. I'm sorry. He told the media. He stood up in front of the media and accepted responsibility for it. I mean, he, he solidified the respect that he deserves from everybody in baseball by the way he handled it. Angel Hernandez, that night, Mark, would not even allow the pool reporter from San Francisco to record his comments about his call. He said all she could do was write them down. She wasn't allowed to record him. He handled it so terribly that he just entrenched himself as one of the least respected umpires in baseball.
1: Yeah, even after uh, Joyce blew that call, uh, I think it was 90 days later they had a poll, and he was still voted the number one umpire in baseball. It's be- yeah. Exactly because of what you just said. Because, you, you know, you make a mistake, you screw up, and you can understand those calls. That's going to happen from time to time. But if baseball has instituted instant replay. To get the calls right. If that is the charge of instant replay, get it right. Then I, my belief is you have three opportunities to challenge in, in a game. And it doesn't matter if it's, I mean, not balls and strikes, clearly you couldn't do it that way. But on balls like that home run, uh, like Joyce's call, uh, there have been other plays where you could, you could challenge it. I remember early, I think it was this year, or was it last, that somebody went down the right field line. It appeared they'd caught the ball. But then instant replay showed he dropped the ball. He never caught it in the stands. Remember, he jumped into the stands. I think it was a Yankee. Uh, and he, he had dropped the ball. <laughs> the umpire called the guy out. And that would have been easily overturned because instant replay showed it. he dropped it. So if if you're, if you're going to do it, that's why I was so upset in that Indians game where they didn't overturn that home run and, and start it over because they had the ability to get it right. And the whole reason for instant replay is to get it right, but they chose not to do that.
0: Yep, you're absolutely right. Hey, I want to move on to J.A. Happ before we get into our Johnny Bench interview. <coughs> just just a, a mention here on J.A. Happ. He was hit in the head with a line drive uh on Wednesday night. It was if you didn't see it, uh it it wasn't pretty. Uh he does have a fractured skull. He also hurt his knee, but he's gonna be out for four to six weeks because of what happened. He does not have I, I find this hard to believe a concussion. But Mark, he's the third pitcher in the last two years to be hit in the head with a line drive. What are your thoughts about this?
1: Well, I, I got to admit, I personalized and internalized what happened to him because it happened to me, and I, I was pitching in really? an all-star. Yeah, I was pitching in an all-star game, and I think I was twelve years old or something. But before the game, uh, as kind of a treat, we got to pitch to some minor league pitchers or minor league hitters, and to, you know, throw batting practice and stuff like that. Now, why we didn't have a screen up, I don't know. But I, you know, some young kid, I was trying to throw as hard as I could to impress these minor leaguers. And this guy hit a line drive back through the box and hit me in the face, uh, broke the orbit of my right eye, broke my nose, broke my cheekbone. And I don't know if I had a concussion or not. I mean, I don't know how I could not have had one. But when I saw what happened to him, I can still see that ball coming back to me. And I put my glove up and I moved it too quick and I moved it away from my face. I was reaching for it and my glove went too fast and the ball came back, hit me in the face, knocked me out. The ball went into left field. And I remember waking up in the hospital and I can still, I guess when the blood gets in your, in your body, in your mouth or whatever, I, I could still taste it, if that makes any sense. Uh, and I, when, when that happened to him, I, I don't know if I was happy or sad that he turned his head in time. Because I know a lot of guys have been hit flush in the face and, you know, had the same result I had, broken noses and broken jaws. And I remember a number of kids have been killed uh, by, I mean, when I'm saying a number, at least a half a dozen, I think, over the last 30, 40 years have been killed by line drives back through the box. I know two happened in the same year. And, of course, that coach at first base was was killed, um, Mm -hmm. former Cardinal. So it's I don't know what you do about it because I don't think pitchers, unless you disagree, I don't know how pitchers could wear a helmet and pitch. And maybe there's something you know, new technology or something like that. But I don't know how you can see the plate, and and it just doesn't seem logical to me. So I don't know what you do about it.
0: Well, I've got two questions for you, and mm-hmm. and we've got to get to the bench interview. So try to keep the answers. <laughs> Kind of short, but okay. First of all, when you got hit in the face, how did that affect you throughout the rest of your pitching career?
1: I, for four or five years, I was very cognizant of it. And I, re- I tell you what it one did, what it did. The guys who get hit, t- typically you throw a pitch on the outside corner and the guy comes up to the middle with it. So I remember always thinking, okay, either pitch it way outside or pitch it inside <laughs> because they can't hit yeah. you if it's way outside or inside. But it, it does, it stays in the back of your mind.
0: Another question I had for you, and this is just an opinion of mine. I think the way that these guys follow through, they're always off balance. They're unbalanced and unprepared for anything that's hit back at them. Do you think that has anything to do with it?
1: Well, of course. You know, you lose your perspective. And it always scares me when I think about um, a role Chapman because he's so close to the plate, because he's so long, and his stride, the mound is 60 feet, 6 inches from the plate, and I bet he's close to 55, 57 feet from home plate. And as hard as he throws, he'd have no shot. If somebody lines one back to the middle, he has absolutely no shot to avoid getting hit. But again, what can you do about it unless they enforce a helmet rule almost like a catcher's mask for those guys, but I don't think the pitchers would would ever agree to do it.
0: Yeah, I don't think you could get away with that. Hey, we're going to have our Johnny Bench interview coming up. We're going to do that right after this timeout. Here's the pitch. Last Advance, a novel by Mark Donahue, available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books & Company. And you can also pick up your copy at talk.com. Just sign on and order your copy of the book. Mark, uh, you know, Johnny Bench is playing in the Field of Dreams Pepsi Max Challenge game this weekend in Rochester, New York. Uh, tell us your recollections of Johnny Bench. You're closer to the situation than I am down there, although he was one of my heroes growing up, but what are your recollections of Bench?
1: Well, it's funny because he he signed when he was eighteen and, and people forget he was not a number one draft pick, uh, even by the Reds. He was their number two pick. Do you know who's number one? No. Bernie Carbo was the number oh, one draft that's pick. Right,
0: the- that's right. That's
1: <laughs> right. And so he didn't have a lot of fanfare. He was a catcher. Uh, he was, you know, he wasn't a big guy. Uh, he only played high school ball, so you didn't have a lot of minor league experience to, you know, to, to base any judgment on him. People said he was good, but and then he hit one, I think, one sixty, uh, his first year coming up, I believe in '67. He was only eighteen or nineteen years old, right out of high school. But I, I saw him play uh, his his first year. And I, the, the confidence I mentioned about the Indians, Johnny Bench, he wasn't confident. He was cocky, and but he could back it up. And right before we, before we get to the interview, the, the thing I remember most about Johnny Bench was going down there. I think in nineteen sixty nine or seventy, and th- they were playing at uh, I think at Crosley Field, and Jim Merritt was pitching, and Jim Merritt was a uh, a, a left handed Bronson Arroyo. And he was lobbing the ball up there, threw a curveball. Johnny Bench stood up, caught the ball barehanded on a pitch. This is a pitch. And fired a seed back to him. And you could hear it over the ballpark, throw the damn ball. And I'll never forget that. And all of a sudden, I love Johnny Bench. (laughs) Like, that's so cool. So if you were a Reds fan, it was such a pleasure growing up with a guy like Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Griffey and, Foster and Rose, all the rest. It's just uh, something I'll never forget, and uh, watching him play was a real treat.
0: Well, I did get an opportunity to ask him if Pete belonged in the hall, but yes or no answer, Mark, before we get to the interview. Bench the best catcher ever?
1: I think if you add everything up, yeah. If if you had to have one catcher for one game, Johnny Bench is your guy.
0: I, I agree with you. Let's get right to the interview. Johnny Bench, of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Famer on our Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Johnny Bench, our guest, he's going to be involved in the Pepsi Packs Pex Field of Dreams game on May 18th, which is a Saturday in Rochester, New York. Johnny, thanks a lot for joining us. Tell me, how did you get involved in this?
2: Well, somebody elected me. <laughs> That's always the best thing, isn't it, Greg? I mean, you know, Pepsi uh, Max, of course, is a, we had the dream, uh, dream Game last year, Field of Dreams game, and and uh, it was up to the, the people of the of this country to, to vote on who they think is the, the, the greatest uh, player. If they had a field of dreams, who would they put out on the field? And so last year I was fortunate enough to be on the team, and again this year I'm uh, I'm joining the team, uh, not by my talents of last year at the game. If they'd scouted me, they probably wouldn't have been back, but at the same time, it's sort of a... You know, it is the legends of the game. It is your field of dreams. It's like going back and reaching back in time and who would you like to see and what would you like to do and and so uh last year we we, we had a ball. We had like twelve thousand people at the game in Columbus and uh I guess you have the information on getting the tickets because if you if you want to go to the game in Rochester, um you can go to Wakemans, any local Rochester Wakemans, and you buy two twelve packs Uh, Pepsi-Cola, and uh, you can get a free ticket to to come to the game and see guys like uh, guys that I'm anxious to see again because I haven't seen Trevor Hoffman and and Fred McGriff in a while. Last year, you know, it was uh, a lot of fun with uh, the likes of uh, Pedro Martinez, who I thought could go right back into the rotation, Reggie Jackson, Ricky Henderson, and Wade Boggs. And uh, some of these guys are still pretty good hitting shape uh can throw, Control and I and I Dennis Eckersley was on last year. He pitched a heck of a game and then wound up had a shoulder surgery. But I think like all of us, you know, the parts wear out and and uh, it'll be at uh, out at uh, Frontier Field, which is uh, gonna be exciting and everything else and I could um it's fun to go back to Rochester. I mean it's just a, a great venue for this and we've got a couple of guys representing that won the contest and, uh, Johnny Carrata from uh, Rochester, and that's why we're there at the game. And, uh, the general opening must Stephen catch Mark of Washington. So it's American League versus the National League, uh, Field of Dreams game.
0: Well, I know last year was a lot of fun to watch. Johnny, uh, uh, let's get into your career just a little bit. You know, by far, I think you were the best catcher ever in this game, but excluding yourself, who did you think was the best catcher you've ever seen?
2: Well, you know, during my era, and you know, great people talk about uh where have all the catchers gone? Where are all the great catchers? And I, I you know, we still have great catchers. You just have to remember there's only like thirteen, I think 12, thirteen catchers in the Hall of Fame. So you're only getting like one per decade. That's just that's just the way the numbers are. And unless you, you know, you've got um, credentials like you led the league in home runs or RBIs or maybe even like, like Joe Mauer leaving the league and hitting. You know, you sometimes overlook it. In my day, you know, I loved watching Jerry Grody and Randy Huntley. They were fabulous catchers. I mean, they really were. And, you know, Randy put up condition numbers. Jerry wasn't the best hitter. But these guys could really catch, you know. And you look back at an era where, you know, you had guys like Ted Simmons who could hit and you had Manny and names that, of course, come back, there was Steve Yeager, you know. So there were there were a lot of them, I and mean, right now you re- we're seeing Buster Posey, he's been the rookie of the year. He's, he's been the MVP, and, and he's such a great kid, and uh the other day I, I, I tweeted, I texted him, and uh, after he signed his contract for $168 million, and that's just, you know, one of the contracts, his is, latest contract, and I, I texted him, I said, you've now made $166 million more than I've made in my entire career. So, it's the, the money's changed. But you know, when you look at the Melina brothers have been great catchers and everything else. And if you really just solidly watch um, watch baseball and you go and you focus on the catcher, these guys are really good. They throw great these days. We have a thing called the Johnny Denture Award, which is in Wichita, Kansas. It's the college catcher of the year. And we've got like guys that are are in the major leagues like Suzuki and Ionetta and Posey and You know, Clemens, and it—it's sort of like these. When I see these kids come out of college, and uh, and then watch them develop, they really are. I mean, they really are. So, so my my era, those guys that you know that I watch, because you know, in mechanical and everything else, and the way they handle pitchers, I love to watch them handle pitchers. We got, you know, we've got two young catchers in Cincinnati, and Devin Mesoraco, and it was a big game for him last night, and. He's done a great job filling in for Hannigan and you know these are these are the things that I watch and I'm you know and see. And I think Joe I think daryl has got a great future.
0: You know, a lot of people in Cincinnati, Johnny, will compare Mesuraco to you. Those comparisons aren't fair, are they?
2: Well, it's inevitable. I mean, you know, the young, and, and he came out as the number one draft choice for the Reds, and and those are kind of inevitable. It, you know uh we don't, you know, it, it's going to probably put some undue pressure on him and everything else. But, you know, it's, it's only a really, I mean, he just now had the chance to catch on a regular basis with Hannigan going down with the oblique. And so he's really just had one opportunity. And, you know, when I came up at the end of 67, I think mean, I 160-something for the year, and I started off slow in 68. In and then, you know, you get your feet underneath you you start to, Slow the game down a little bit, slow the pitches down, and all of a sudden you start to develop into what we, you know, will hope. I, I you know, I see, I can see Devin as a, you know, in the middle of the lineup here, four I think he has that potential.
0: Tell me, Johnny, what about Sparky, the manager? What made him so successful?
2: Well, he related. You know, he he was a mentor. But it related to he asked you questions. He wanted to know what you were thinking, wanted to know how you felt. He wanted to know about the opposing team. And then he went out on the on a daily basis and managed the team. You know, he managed the game. And right away you saw that he knew everything. He was three get three innings ahead of everybody. He was able to move pitchers around. He was able to to um uh get the pinch hitters in, you know, and, excuse me, he developed a, you know, he asked us about certain players that would fit into our ball club. And he knew that some guys weren't going to play. I mean, they had this, their their position was they needed to be on the bench. That was their role. They knew that that's what they had to do. And he played them from time to time when they, when they needed to. And, you know, he let you go out and play. He, he really did. He trusted you. And, and and when you feel like a professional, when you feel like you you know that you're respected, it, it, it goes a long way. I remember Sparky on the first day of spring training, asking me what I felt about you know what we should do on the field, and for the first time I felt like a professional. And, and it was 1970. I mean, it was it was just a, a wonderful experience to know that. And then on a daily basis, just to to have him start, sit down with you and say, hey, you don't need to do this or you need to do that. And it was always so effective for our whole ball club.
0: Johnny, two-part question: How did you know that it was time to retire? And secondly, did you ever consider leaving the Reds and going to the American League and DHing for a couple of years?
2: You know, uh, I, I couldn't be Johnny Bench anymore. You know, I, and that was really the effect: our ball club was not going to win. We didn't have the nucleus. We didn't have the people. We'd lost. You know, so many of our players that. Trades and free agency, and and I, you know, it, I I just didn't feel like I was earning the money. I mean, they were paying me a, a, a pretty good amount of money in those days, and so they had to. Uh, I just never felt like I was Johnny Bench on the field. I just couldn't perform, and and my you know my arm there was hurting, uh, you know, it, um, and I couldn't really catch every day. I couldn't be. You know what what the fans needed or what I needed and uh I would I just never you know I th- I think when you you reach a point and and that's what I tell some people I mean uh, John Elway called me and said how do you know when it's time and I said when you you know you'll know when you can't be John Elway anymore and right now you're still John Elway you can still do things I couldn't now when you say I can't live up to the standards of my own standards then probably it's time to step away. And, that, and that's what that's what we saw. But, you know, John went on the way to the Super Bowl and I was still so happy for him and everything. But, you know, it, it's like, you know, it's self-analysis. You know, the mirror doesn't really, you know, lie to you. A whole lot if you just look into the perspective of who you are and what you are.
0: Yeah, I hope I have just time for two quick questions. Johnny, what's your opinion of the Cincinnati Reds this season?
2: Well, I'm a bit concerned, offensive-wise, you know. Uh, got, the, you know, Ludwig goes down in the first game. Cueto's, you know, had arm problems again. They, they you know, it seems like everyone's a, a nail-biter. I mean, you know, this is the, the cardiac kids in a lot of ways. Last night, we won a ball game. I'm watching, you know, and Devin comes up, 10 hits, hit the home run, and then two hits at nine miles. I mean, that that can make a season uh, you can turn a kid like Masaraco around possibly just being patient enough and, and not being you know batting eighth is hard I try to you know, I try to explain to him in a tweet that you know you have to wait if you you're not going to get good pitches and he, he wants to do well so quick but the bullpen has proved that it, you know, it's still you know really solid uh, you've got uh, uh, an offense that I still you know hasn't gelled quite yet and they're still trying to fit you know who's a 4th place hitter you know Phillips is doing a good job Joey's back to swinging the bat Bruce still has you know holes and he still mechanic wise still swings the bat you know not like she's capable of so you know I think guys pressed. you know when you, when you get a guy out of the 4th place spot then everybody tries to pick up the slack and they get a little more aggressive they try to do too much and it's just hard to relax but you know, a just an absolute marvelous, marvelous trade. I mean, this has really made the difference in this ball. But I'm not sure, you know, we would be even at 500 if Chew hadn't been there. So this is a ball club that I still I love the kids. Uh, mechanic-wise, they've still got a few things, they you know, uh, hitting-wise, they need to, to, to do. And if they can hold on, and maybe Ludwig comes back. But uh, I think they're going to bounce around, bounce around, and then... You know, come July, August, and Ludwig comes back. And if he comes back healthy, you know, this is a ball club that uh, can still win the division pretty uh, pretty much. Is. And St. Louis has been an amazing team this year. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm excited and, and cautious at the same time.
0: Johnny, one last question. I know you're probably going to get asked this several times today, and you probably already have, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Is it time to allow Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame? <laughs>
2: the guy, this is 23 years, man. I mean, you know, we need to figure this out. This is something if Pete's had an opportunity uh, for himself to be able to, you know, rectify things. Uh, and he's had chances over the past few years, believe me. And, uh, you know, if, if Pete, you know, Pete uh, changes things with his perspective to, to, the, to the game of baseball and to the higher-ups, and says, you know, my life has changed. Uh and, you know, Mia Koopa, Mia Koopa, then then it'll be an opportunity for him to to be reinstated with the Yeah, it's a long time. I mean, you know, it's a long time for anybody and for what his achievements have been and everything else, but he's still you know, it's still part of the the onus is on him. So um he mm-hmm. has to prove that uh everybody's fine with it and and has a different different perspective on it and it's, it is. Twenty-three years is a long time, but, you know, it's uh, it, it's part of what, you know, the process is, and he just has to go through it.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I've got time for one more question. If I do, I'm going to sneak it in here. That 75 series you guys played against the Red Sox was considered, uh, you know, one of the greatest of all time. Johnny, can you sit back and appreciate that series now in retirement more than you could, obviously, than when you were playing?
2: Well, you know, It was my greatest, you know, my greatest moment in baseball to walk into the clubhouse after Game Seven and see twenty-five players as world champions, owners, sponsors, all the players, the equipment men, the trainers, all the coaches. I mean, to see that, you know, if we all got there, it wasn't just you know, you know, an individual effort. You even went MVPs, and you know, it's it's totally different. I mean, you can. You know, you can celebrate with a with few friends and everything else. But when when you win a World Series and millions celebrate with you, that's that's what it was all about. And but for that moment, walking into that club outside, I had the best feeling I've ever had in the game of baseball.
0: Johnny, I think my time is up. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate this. This is a kind of a right dream here. come true thank for you. me. Thank yeah, you. Thank no, you very that's much.
2: That's what the main team's all about. Markham, Rochester, May Thank you.
0: Thank you, Johnny Bench. Here on our Ohio Baseball Weekly microphones. Mark, um, the Pete Rose question. Uh, You and I kind of, we didn't discuss it last week, but I told you to keep an ear open for it. What did you think?
1: Well, I I think he is still, you know, there was a feud between those two guys that was pretty well known for a long time. And um, I think it's better but I think he's putting the onus on Pete uh, to finally do what has to be done. You know, mea culpa, mea culpa. He kept saying it. Uh, and Pete either is too hard-headed to do that or he's getting the wrong advice or something. I don't know. But I do think it's time. What bothers me about this more than anything is you have a Hall of Fame. And how much credibility does it have when Pete rose is not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, why can't you put a plaque next to his name saying what he did, talk about the punishment? You're not condoning it. You're you're saying, here's what happened. But how could you have a, a, a baseball hall, hall of Fame and not have Pete Rose in it? It makes no sense to me.
0: No, I, I agree with you. And, and I think you and I agree from a standpoint that yeah, the Hall of Fame is affiliated with Major League Baseball, but they are not run by Major League Baseball. They could simply end this controversy by going ahead and saying, Pete Rose goes into the Hall of Fame, period. It, it may ruffle a few feathers with Major League Baseball, but there's nothing baseball could do about it.
1: No, and that's what I don't understand it, uh, because, if, again, if you want a credible Hall of Fame, Uh, you could have, you ought to have Joe Jackson in it. Sheila's Joe ought to be in it. Explain what he did. Explain the punishment. Uh, The same thing, but but, but the other part of that equation is there are a number of players, including Ty Cobb, who was accused of, uh, you know, throwing baseball games. Uh, There are so many drunks and wife beaters and drug users and all this stuff in the Hall of Fame that they when you begin legislating against one individual or two individuals it it diminishes the entire game and I I wish the Hall of Fame would grow some and uh, you know and do the right thing I mean Pete Rose it's been what 25 years or something like that 23 years hasn't he paid his debt to society I mean you have convicted murderers who get off in less time than that (laughs) and then Pete you know, he's seventy years old. I'd like to see him in the Hall of Fame before he dies.
0: Yeah, I would too. Mo- moving on throughout the bench interview, was there anything surprising that caught your ear? Yeah, uh, the thing that was, two things
1: surprised me. Number one, uh, I've met Johnny Bench. In fact, I had dinner with Johnny Bench years ago, and he he has really mellowed. He was a pretty arrogant uh, guy and not real friendly and not real fan-friendly at the time. And I remember some people walking up to our table, uh, and he, he was not very polite when they asked for autographs. Uh, he, he definitely has mellow. He's matured. And the, the other part of that is when I met him, I was surprised how smart he was. Johnny Bench is a smart guy. He, he's not smart for a baseball player. He's a smart dude. Uh, he, he's smart in business. He understands. We talked about everything but baseball. And... Uh, what it amazes me that he's never been in baseball. You know, he's never been—he's uh, never tried to be a general manager, which he certainly could. He—he he could be a manager. He, he was never even a coach, other than just going to spring training sometimes. And I—I I, I wish, you know, you, you, obviously you don't have time to ask him all the questions you and I would love to ask. I'd love to ask him, Johnny. Why haven't you been in baseball? Why, why haven't you been a manager, a coach, a GM? in the front office somewhere, uh, player development, something. It, maybe it's because he's making more money, you know, outside of baseball. I don't know. But uh, he's smart. He's articulate. He, he's, he's good with the press. He's a great player. I, I think he would have been a, a great GM, a great uh, even a great field manager.
0: I saw an interview with him preparing for this interview last week, and he addressed that question from the standpoint that, yeah, he was interested in getting into baseball a few years ago. I got the impression it was when Dusty got the managing job, he was interested in taking over the managing position for the Reds. But he said at the time that the opening was there, it wasn't the right time because he was embroiled in the Pete Rose controversy and he wasn't well-liked in Cincinnati. And another thing he said was, you can be the smartest guy in the world as far as baseball is concerned. And the minute you put that uniform on and walk in between the white lines and into the dugout, you become the stupidest.
1: (laughs) There may be a good point to that. But he certainly, I mean, I I would have seen Johnny Bench uh, with his uh, command of, of talent. He knows talent. And I think catchers are probably uh, the best guys to be managers. Uh, he, he certainly could have been a GM, for sure, with it, with his business acumen. And, uh, again, he, he's no dummy. Uh, but it's it's interesting how the these guys, you know, some of the greatest players opt not to be in baseball. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just their decision. And uh, they have so many options, I guess, that... You know, being on the treadmill of being a manager is a pain. I mean, it is a thankless, tiring job that just takes away your whole life for eight months a year. So uh, maybe that was enough of a discouragement not to do it.
0: You know, one question I wanted to ask, Johnny, and I wrote an article about it for the site this week. What I mean, that that team there, the, the big red machine was just a team of, of Hall of Famers and almost Hall of Famers. When you look at that team, it's hard to take one player and say he was it. But, I mean, if you had to take one player on that team, who would it be?
1: Well, for what purpose? Are you starting a team from scratch? or See, that, are you...
0: That's the question. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, you could... There there are players, yeah, you're right, Mark. I mean, for depending upon what purpose, but, I mean, if you had to look at, you know, like, okay, like today, nowadays, uh, Major League Baseball will promote a team, you know, Bryce Harper, the Washington Nationals, Albert Pujols and the California Angels. Who would it be back then for the Cincinnati Reds?
1: Uh, I think Pete Rose. Uh, or, or, You know, as soon as I say that, I think about Joe Morgan, Joe Morgan brought so much to the field. You know, he he was a great second baseman. He was a great hitter. I think in 75 and 76, when he won those back-to-back MVPs, he was clearly the best player in baseball at that time. So if you were going to pick one player, I think he could probably do more than anybody else on the field, despite the tremendous skill sets that so many of those players had. So I, I would probably go with Joe Morgan.
0: Well, and another thing I wrote in the article, too, Mark, when you look at that team, Pete Rose was a great player, but he got pitches because Ken Griffey Sr. was hitting behind him, who got great pitches because Joe Morgan was behind him, who got great pitches because Johnny Bench was behind him, who got great pitches because of Tony Perez, and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you you start rattling off that lineup, and you don't even get to George Foster. (laughs) <laughs> no, you know, and, uh, and then you had Cesar Geronimo and uh, Concepcion. Geronimo hit over three hundred that year. <laughs> it's easy to hit number eight, and he, he's hitting three hundred. He, he had like twelve or fifteen home runs. I mean, who do you pitch to?
0: You know, there was one question that I wanted to ask Johnny. If I had, if I had one more question, if I had time for one more question, it would have been this question: When Bob Hauzen made the deal. Lee May and Tommy Helms to Houston for Geronimo Morgan, Billingham, and Menke. Did you think he was off his rocker?
1: Yeah. yeah, that would have been a good question. You
0: know, because if you remember back then, everybody thought that that was a terrible trade for the Reds.
1: That's right. That's right. Because well, Lee so, Lee May was so loved by that team. But you know, you you mentioned that 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 seventy five team and. Uh, for Reds fans who are maybe a little disappointed at the Reds start this year, that team in 1975, after 44 games, they were 22 and 22. 500 ball. Going nowhere. They went 86 and 30 to finish out the season. And at one stretch, they won 43 out of 50 games. Now you talk about a team that was hot. From uh, I think it was uh, May twenty, May twentieth or something that they were forty four after forty four games. But I mean, talk and about Mark. A, yeah.
0: There, there was one move that Sparky Anderson made that triggered that role. What was it?
1: Moving Pete Rose from left field to third base and putting George Foster in left field.
0: Yep, and 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 he kept it a secret for a week. I remember yeah, reading that. that he kept it a secret for a week that he was moving Pete to third.
1: And I remember the game they did it. They were playing the Giants. And it was about in that period during their playing 500 ball. And they brought in George Foster, and I think he hit 30 home runs the rest of the year. And Pete Rose went off and played great third base. Just great third base. And you know how many superstars today would make a move like that for the betterment of their team? Not many. I'll answer it for hey, look you. Look
0: at Mike Trout. Look at Mike Trout out in Los Angeles. He's throwing... He's, he's pitching a great... Just moving from center to left. Jeez. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's good. Hey, it, it was an outstanding interview. I think I, I, you know, I'm a little prejudiced, but hey, I, I enjoyed talking to Johnny Bench. I wish I would have had another 15 minutes with him, but nonetheless, uh, we're going to replay the interview on Thursday night's BBA Baseball Talk Show. Mark, well, uh, we're running short me, on so. time here. Uh, by I'm the
2: pardon?
1: way, I just want to congratulate you on what a great interview you did. With Johnny Bench, I mean, you, you were very, very good, and uh, congratulations on getting that.
0: Well, thank you, Greg. Did, Greg did the work on getting it, and and I just got lucky enough to do it. Mark, what what do the Reds have coming up this week?
1: Well, they got. Uh, let me see. They're in Miami uh, tonight, or starting tomorrow night, three game series. And let me see where do they go then? They go to. I don't have their schedule in front of me.
2: Philadelphia.
1: Philadelphia, then at New York. They had nine games coming up on the road in nine consecutive days and, and frankly uh you know they should win at least five, maybe six of those games uh the, the, those are teams they should be
0: well, the Indians are going to be in Philadelphia, they're gonna preclude the Reds arrival into the the uh Philadelphia on Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon, and then they come home and play Seattle Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Eric Wedge will be coming back. To Cleveland. So we'll be back next week with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Mark, until then, have a good week.
1: You too, David.
0: Our thanks to Mark Donahue and also, of course, to Johnny Bench for being our guest tonight. Don't forget our BBA Baseball Talk show on Thursday night. David Nichols will be with us to talk about the Washington Nationals and we'll replay the Johnny Bench interview. We'll be back with you again next Monday night at 9 o'clock here on UltimateSportsTalk.com for another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Until then, I'm Dave Mitchell.